shacking up, climate change, and spiritual waves. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Science Mike, a basic nerd with no academic qualifications whatsoever, but I do work hard at making the science on this program accurate to the point that scientists will say what I said was good. But uh, let's do a show and get it started. Hi, Science Mike. My name is Timothy. I have a question about language and music. I speak German fluently, and I lived over in Germany for 10 years. But when I was learning German, I noticed that whenever I heard a song sung to me at the very beginning stages of learning German, it was more difficult for me to understand what was sung to me than when it was spoken to me. And I was wondering if that had a difference from where language and music interact in the brain, if there's something along those lines. Also along with music, I noticed that whenever I worship with music, it affects me in a way more powerfully than just talking or studying or reading does. What does music have to do with our brain and How does that affect worship and language? I know that's probably a two-part question there, but thank you so much for all that you've done and for the positive influence you have had on my life. Timothy, that is a fascinating question. Uh, I'm going to do my best to give you a great answer from the science as it stands today. But uh, let's talk with a little primer on neuroscience or start with a primer on neuroscience because we haven't actually been able to image a living brain for very long at all. So until, you know, recently, when we looked at a brain in detail, it was through dissection. (laughs) That's obviously, A, you're you're looking at a brain that's uh, undergone some period of decay, some um, extremely invasive procedure to be extracted from a human body, right? So it's, it's a... It's not necessarily an ideal way to learn about a brain, and you're seeing it at rest. And because of the complexity of the brain, it's difficult to learn about a brain at rest. It's not, you know, you can look at a car at rest and figure a lot of things out, but uh, the brain's a lot more complex than a car. And so uh, when we look at brains today, we're using technology that's actually pretty primitive. The most precise non-invasive systems We have to look at brains, group neurons together by the hundreds of thousands or millions. Um, So the the resolution that we're looking at is relatively low. And this this is important to know and to remember when thinking about and discussing neuroscience studies that are based on brain imaging. The resolution is low and the sample sizes are small. 
You don't actually have that many participants in these studies. Why? Because this in- equipment is incredibly expensive and it takes a long time to do brain imaging. Uh, so, you know, the your grant is, is burned up very quick with just, you know, maybe, maybe a few dozen participants and sometimes less than that. And sample size, if you have any kind of a statistical background, you know, is very important in getting data that can be projected accurately to larger groups of people. That's how science works. Larger sample sizes are more helpful, okay? So based on the way we do brain imaging, it's it's very difficult to get large sample sizes in neuroscience, neuroimaging research, okay? Another common problem in neuroscience is mistaking correlation for causation. So we see this part of the brain fires uh, or has increased oxygen absorption or whatever metric we're measuring and imaging uh, becomes active during a certain type of stimulus. And that's a correlation. It's not necessarily a causation. You know, that part of the brain could be um, activating for an unrelated reason or simply uh, because another part of the brain is responding directly and it's an indirect response. We have no way to to really tease that out today. And then when people write about neuroscience in popular media, uh, the findings are typically very overgeneralized. And this happens even among respected institutions, even uh, publications that specialize in reporting on science, because the findings in neuroscience tend to be subtle, they tend to be nuanced, they tend to have a lot of conditions attached, and uh, that doesn't make for very interesting reading or make it easy to summarize. And when I research questions for this program, I generally start with papers, uh, academic papers, published papers about work. And then I'll try to find a popular piece to put in the show notes that is, is accurate enough you know, to be useful. And with your particular question this week, Timothy, that wasn't the case. I, I basically just have papers uh, because this is a question that is still very much being explored in the sciences. You know, there's no consensus on how precisely our brains process speech and music and how much similarity there may be in those processes. Like, are they identical? Is it exactly the same? Hearing speech and music, are they different or distinct or some mixture of the two? Uh, Most of the popular models about how the brain processes sound would tell us that there is significant overlap in how the brain processes speech and music. Now, many neuroscientists think of sensory processing as a hierarchical process. So there's like a first stage where effectively, you know, in uh, earlier parts of the auditory cortex say, hey, oh, wow, that's a sound. Is it dangerous? <laughs> uh, and if, if, if it's a dangerous sound, then, you know, we go, we go straight to a limbic activation. If it's a gunshot, if it's a crash, we search for the source of that loud bang. Uh, but if it's not, then we'll we'll do um, we'll avoid that pathway into a, you know, that immediate fight or flight emotional activation, and we'll go into second stage processing, which they would call abstract processing. And in fact, one relatively recent MIT study did find some parts, what they called populations of neurons, in the auditory cortex responded to music but not to speech, supporting the idea that there are differences in the way that the brain processes speech and music. 
Uh, another study supported this idea by finding uh, parts of speech that, when clipped and played in repetition, sounded musical. Uh, so it creates a very similar similar stimulus, uh, makes it easier to study. And uh, in this study, they found that the early auditory areas of the brain, remember that hierarchy idea, do in fact respond in the same manner to speech and music, but but actually quite different secondary networks were activated uh, depending on whether the sound was interpreted by the brain as speech or music. So there's there's some support here that in fact different secondary networks in the brain engage to process these two different types of sound. Now, what we're talking here is simply about speech or a vocalized melody. Music is extremely powerful and emotionally poignant, even if it doesn't have words or a vocal component at all. Music, whether it's happy or sad, stimulates the stratum. That's a part of the brain strongly associated with pleasure and reward. We know that heart rates rise, that pupils dilate, that the brain's cerebellum and cerebral cortex become more active when listening to music. So music creates this intense emotional and physical response in people. Now sometimes speech, when played over music, can carry a more powerful response. Think about how many speeches you've heard in movies that were just moving and powerful and you thought, why don't people speak like that in the real world? Why don't real presidents or real leaders sound that way? Well, they aren't scored. (laughs) They don't have a composer and an orchestra creating power behind their speech because of the way that people respond to music. By the way, this is a big trick we use on the Liturgist podcast. Uh, My partner, Michael Gunger goes through and he takes what we're saying and he composes and attaches music to that, which heightens people's emotional response to the content. So why in worship do you have this intensely powerful response to language? Because humans have a powerful response to music. Uh, Now, in terms of the other part of your question, is there a difference in the brain and how we process uh, music and speech, it appears probably. Yeah, that, that's a reasonable interpretation of the data today. Uh, and that may impact discernibility, especially when learning a language. Because when you're learning a language, uh, you're using a lot of uh, neocortical function. You, don't, you haven't created pathways in your brain that make this an automatic process yet. But I can't give you like a more specific, well, because of this part and this part and this network, I just couldn't find that. I don't think it's out there yet, uh, but maybe it will be. I've got tons. If you want to read further, three really interesting papers uh, in the show notes this week, as well as a popular piece on why music is so evocative in the show notes at AskScienceMike.com. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, What is the science of cohabitation? I was part of a conservative evangelical church for many years that taught that cohabiting is not only ungodly, but also that it is unhealthy for your relationship and self-worth, as it can reinforce the idea that you must perform and be on your best behavior to earn the favor of your roommate, 
since you have no formal commitment like a marriage binding you to each other. The pastor even cited secular psychological research supporting his message. The research supposedly linked cohabitation with higher divorce rates for those couples who eventually decided to get married after first living together. Is this true? Is it true that moving in together before being married reduces your relationship's chance of surviving? Thank you. I really appreciate your work. Uh, Well, you know, it is common that science gets misinterpreted from the pulpit uh, or twisted subtly or not so subtly to fit a religious narrative. Uh, In this case, I think your pastor probably made a good faith effort to accurately represent psychological research and sociological research because uh, there's a large body of research that does say or indicate or the conclusion is uh, cohabitation has a negative effect on marital success rates. It has a strong association, a measurably statistically significant association with an increased risk of divorce. So the traditional answer would be probably, yeah, cohabitation doesn't make for a healthy marriage. That's overstating it. Cohabitation leads to an increased risk of divorce would be a better way to phrase that. Uh, But newer studies and analysis of existing studies are questioning that assumption quite well. Um, because what we found is many studies may show higher divorce rates among people who cohabitate before marriage. They have failed to adjust for age and their findings. Younger people are more likely to move in with each other before they get married, statistically. And uh, younger people are more likely to get divorced, even if they don't cohabitate first. Uh, older people, if they cohabitate, if they marry, if they don't marry at all and simply stay living together, are more likely to stay together the later uh, you get married, the uh, stronger your chances for marital success with severely diminishing returns. But I won't pull apart those data curves because I found some variation across studies. Either way, there is a trend that you have an increased chance of staying together if you just wait longer to get married, if you just get older. I think that makes a lot of sense. Older people have figured out more uh, generally of what they want in life, of what they really value, maybe have additional communication skills in describing that to a partner and maybe increased resolve. They've they've been in more relationships probably. And if this one doesn't work out, that's okay. We can try again with someone else. So uh, your pastor accurately cited research from a dated perspective and a more contemporary look in psychology and the social sciences would say, no, cohabitation does not increase your risk of divorce, but getting married younger does, (laughs) which, you know, I I would be really surprised to hear that from a pulpit because uh, at least in my experience uh, growing up in the church, there's a strong implicit encouragement to marry young and uh, definitely a lot of favor in the structure of churches toward married people. Um, If you're not married, you get lumped into this, this, this singles dynamic. So you have this like finely age graded small groups, uh, depending on where you're married. But if you're if you're singles, we just have this this college career, and then this giant you know multi decade spanning singles group. A little bit of a of a rant, but my point is 
there, there's a cultural association with marriage and getting married young being a positive thing in the church, and the science doesn't necessarily support that. It seems that, um, according to the research, waiting to get married can lead to better success in marriage. Okay, it's another mid-show advertisement for my events. I'm putting these in the middle of the program, so hopefully people will listen. I'll make it quick. May 13th, Saturday, I'll be at Christ Church in Greenwich, Connecticut. May 16th, Tuesday, I'll be at Buckhead Church in Atlanta, uh, meeting with a singles group. September 15th and 16th, Los Angeles for the Liturgist Gathering. October 6th, Boston for the Liturgist Gathering. October 21st, the Rubicon Conference in Dublin, Ireland. October 27th, the Liturgist Gathering in Seattle. November 15th, the Ripple Effect Conference in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Now, uh, the Liturgist Gathering, go to theliturgistgathering.com to learn more about that. It's a thing for people who listen to the Liturgist Podcast. They're exploring a new world of science and faith and questions, and and they kind of feel left out in both secular society and the church. We all get together in a room, figure it out. Tons of fun. And as you know, I'm putting together a UK tour in October as well. London, lockdown. We got the Midlands in England, lockdown. Still looking for that stop in Scotland. So Glasgow or uh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh. Here's the deal. I can't say that correctly until someone invites me to the city. So I'm going to need you to uh, go to AskScienceMike.com, click on the button that says Speaking, fill out the form. And uh, it's really like this is not going to be an expensive way to get me there. I'm already going to be there. There's not like flight expenses. So uh, you could host an Ask Science Mike in your community very easily. Uh, just reach out. Come on. we got to make this happen. I, I really, I'm genetically uh, <laughs> significantly scultish, like really significantly basically scottish and irish is all i am uh shocking that my family's been here since before the revolutionary war and uh we've just kind of stayed scottish irish um either way i'd like to visit my homeland i'd like to do a live podcast there so go click that speaking button and uh, we'll talk soon and you can tell me how to pronounce the name of your city Hi, Science Mike. I really love your work. Um, I think you are so gifted at explaining difficult scientific theories and ideas to the average person like myself. Um, up until I discovered the Liturgist podcast, I didn't have much of an interest in science. I always thought of myself as a highly creative type. And even though I was able to do well in school, those other subjects always seemed foreign to me. I now understand that that is silly, as science is a highly creative and fascinating thing. For instance, I find it so intriguing that our five senses allow us to experience the world in so many ways. My question is, along the lines of, if a tree falls in the forest and no one heard it, did it make a sound? If, for instance, human beings did not have ears or any other organs to perceive what we call sound waves, would sound even exist? Sure, sound waves can be felt physically through vibration, but if we had no hearing, wouldn't we likely chalk those vibrations up to something else? And with that in mind, is it possible that there is some 
physical organ or type of mechanism of perception that we don't currently possess, that could be the gateway to experiencing the spiritual realm, a sort of sixth sense, if you will. Could this help explain mystical experiences as random moments when the spirit realm is perceived by the human realm? I know this is a pretty far-fetched idea, but I'd really love to hear your thoughts on it. Thanks for all your work. I love this question. I love it so much. I started Ask Science Mike with the idea of inviting people into the joy of science. People who'd grown up in religious traditions where science wasn't uh, taught or respected uh, or was twisted and distorted. Creative people who don't view themselves as scientific. I just love science. And I thought uh, just answering people's science questions to the best of my ability, could open their eyes to how useful, how awe-inspiring, and how amazing the discipline of science is. It was only later that the show seemed to turn into an advice column. <laughs> um, which, you know, I'm again, it's also about creating this, this space for people. So I'm going to answer whatever questions you want me to answer, uh, even when I feel like, gosh, I have no, my opinion is irrelevant here. But I, I love, especially the last few episodes, I've noticed a real resurgence in the science questions, and they're just fun. They're lots of fun. So uh, let's talk about your fascinating question. Would sound waves exist if we didn't have ears? Uh, sure, I think they would. Here's why. Uh, we detect signals and forces that are invisible to our senses all the time, right? We can't directly perceive uh, infrared light, for example, with our eyes, although our skin is sensitive to it, we can feel heat. Uh, ultraviolet light exists, even though we, we don't see it. And we can use uh, IR and UV photography to visualize uh, those signals, radio waves, completely invisible to the human experience until we built radios. And now we have radio telescopes and we image the sky. Uh, Geiger counters, uh, you can't detect radiation with your senses, but it's just super useful to detect it with a scientific instrument since it is extremely dangerous to humans. So we have a great uh, history as a species of using technology to translate information that's invisible to us into something that our senses can process. So we could totally do that with sound even if we couldn't hear it. We could translate sound into something we could perceive. Now, if that's the case, if there are spirit waves, it should be possible for us to detect and transform that signal into something our senses perceive. How would we do that? How would we know if spirit waves exist? Well, let's ask the scientific method. And roughly... Here's the steps uh, to, to answering a question with science. One, you make an observation. Two, you ask a question. Three, you make a testable explanation called a hypothesis. Four, you make a prediction based on the hypothesis. Five, you test the prediction. And six, you iterate using the results to make a new hypothesis or prediction. Or if you just nailed it, now you have a repeatable phenomenon and a hypothesis, you're well on the way to creating a scientific theory. Okay? 
So let's do this um, in our heads as a thought experiment. I don't actually have equipment here. We're not going to run a test, but we'll do a thought experiment on how we could test spirit waves or spiritual energy using the scientific method. Our observation is what? Well, people have spiritual experiences. That's true. That's a thing we can observe. That's a thing we can test. So let's ask a question. Why do people have spiritual experiences? Now we need to form a hypothesis. Maybe there are spirit waves our senses can't detect. And maybe those waves are a form of electromagnetic radiation because light is so fundamental to religious texts and traditions. Uh, So then we would make a prediction based on the hypothesis. Uh, There are electromagnetic events during spiritual experiences. So now we would test that prediction by placing sensors on and around people and then waiting while they create an environment where they have a spiritual experience. And then we see what happens to our dials and knobs. Now, I'm oversimplifying this in a proper experiment. We would have a control group and a test group with different criteria. That's important to sciences, uh, is having, having a control and having tests. And then, based on the results, we would either say, oh, good job, we were right, let's dial that in further. Or we would say, gosh, nothing happened, we need to try a different hypothesis. We need to try a different route here. Okay, Now, people have done this kind of research. People have, have looked for uh, external signals during spiritual experiences, and, and so far I really haven't seen anything that supports that. Lots of research has been done in um, identifying brain activity during spiritual experiences. That's really exciting. It's a field of study called neurotheology that fascinates me endlessly. It's a good time. I've, I've always enjoyed studying neurotheology. And from that hypothesis, their hypothesis would be uh, spiritual experiences are a function of brain activity. They're doing a good job of demonstrating that hypothesis. So is it possible that the spirit realm or spiritual energy is something beyond our our senses? Yes. Uh, But if that's the case, it also means because we experience the effects in the physical world, there must be some measurable effect on reality that we can test with the scientific method. And that's how we do science. Our next question came from Stephen and Samantha on Patreon. The people who support this show financially, guess what? They can put a question on the show. And uh, Stephen and Samantha have done so. So here's the question. Hey, Mike. I have a question for you regarding climate change. I don't know if you've answered this before, so I apologize if this is a repeat. It's just such a hot topic these days that it's really hard to sift through people's political or agenda-fueled opinions versus what might actually be going on scientifically. My question is mostly about the direct impact on climate change as it pertains to the grand scheme of our planet's history. I'm not a scientist but I've watched enough nerdy paleontology documentaries to know that the climate on Earth has changed enormously and quite frequently in the grand scheme of things over its evolution. I've even heard theories 
that places like Antarctica could have been temperate at one point in Earth's ancient history. Obviously, most of these huge changes happened before humans were even in the picture. Don't get me wrong, I'm pretty sure that humans are terrible to our environment, and I'm also pretty sure that our current energy use systems will have some sort of awful repercussion that very well could end us as a species someday if we don't do anything about it. I'm just curious if we can tell if our global warming and glacial melting really is due to human influence or if it's just some part of the natural climate change cycle. Thanks so much for all that you do. Love your work. Fantastic question. Timely question. Useful question. Uh, And it's such an important question. We're doing an entire episode on this topic for the Liturgist podcast that will come out sometime this summer or fall. It's a a big episode, one of our mega episodes. So those take a long time to do. We've already recorded stuff for it either way. And you're right, the climate does naturally fluctuate between ice ages and warmer periods in uh, the Earth's history. We're in an ice age right now. And a lot of people don't realize that. We're in an ice age. Now, we're in a warm period in an ice age. But uh, during an ice age, you have you know, persistent ice on the Earth, which we do have at the poles. We have ice all the time. That's an ice age. During temperate periods in the Earth's climate or hot periods, there's no ice on the poles. Uh, and for the entire time humans have been on the planet, it's been an ice age. We've never been here when it's hot. And uh, there's some significant question on how we would handle that. Now, the thing you've got to understand is most of the time the climate changes relatively slowly. And sometimes it changes quickly. And when the climate changes very quickly, that's when you lose a lot of species to extinction. Slow change, species adapt. Quick change, species die out, go extinct. And uh, we're going through a rapid change right now is what the data is telling us. Why? Because we're having a massive change in greenhouse gas levels, which is what we've seen. Those things that tell us we've had different climate eras on the Earth, well, they also let us understand the atmospheric composition in those periods. And when you have palm trees on the poles, so to speak, you have lots of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Well, where are the greenhouse gases coming from in our atmosphere today? Human activity. We're burning ancient plankton and algae in the form of fossil fuels, and in doing so, releasing carbon that was captured by photosynthesis millions of years ago. Uh, We're raising a lot of livestock, and that livestock releases huge quantities of methane into the atmosphere. Methane is a much more potent greenhouse gas than CO2. It just doesn't last as long in the atmosphere. But So we're releasing a lot of CO2. We're releasing a lot of methane. And the climate is changing. That's why there's an overwhelming consensus among climate scientists that A, climate change is happening. And B, humans are driving the majority of that change. Now there is significant debate among scientists about the degree of human influence as well as how quickly these effects will play out. You know, some climate scientists are very alarmist. The media tends to 
highlight those perspectives and they'll say by 2100, you know, we're all going to be underwater. (laughs) And that's not a consensus. We don't know how quickly the seas will rise or what changes will happen when we don't have that kind of granularity. That's why climate science is important. What we do know is the climate is changing. The climate is changing quickly and historically that hasn't been a great thing. Uh, for species on the earth. Um, so I would encourage you, we've got a couple links on Ask Science Mike about this. One is to Skeptical Science. It's a great site that will take you through point by point, argument by argument, cited with data, and help you understand climate science uh, as it pertains to climate change. And I also included a specific article about what does past climate change tell us about global warming and that'll let you get started understanding what is one of the most pressing issues of our time. Our last question came from Jacob in Melbourne, Florida, who asked if there were a film adaptation for Finding God in the Waves, <laughs> who would you want to play protagonist Mike McHarg? <laughs> now, I want to be very clear. I didn't put this question in. It uh, it won fair and square uh, when the patrons voted on questions for the show this week. Uh, this is not an inside job. It's a hilarious question. <laughs> I cannot imagine anyone making a film of my book. I just really can't. I can barely imagine that my book is a book in the first place. Uh, much less that there would be a movie about it. It'd be a really strange film. I just imagine like scene after scene of the protagonist sitting at a desk and reading. (laughs) I mean, that was one of the hardest things about writing that book. My journey is is a story about me reading a lot. (laughs) It really is like a life event, dramatic, interesting. Okay, that's 12 minutes of film. (laughs) <laughs> and then I just read <laughs> and then I like go to this conference and there's the beach thing but it's like the 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 second act of the film would like be me at the library like just a montage I guess of book after book after book oh man sorry I'm overthinking it but yeah it'd be really funny if that <laughs> I think it's a great book we managed to make me reading an interesting part of the book. But uh, I don't think you could do the same on film. In terms of who would play me, I can honestly tell you I've never given that any thought whatsoever. So uh, I thought about, you know, some people say I look like Chuck Todd. Uh, it's like a, a journalist on MSNBC. Um, I don't see it. I think in the past when he was heavier... And uh, and more goateed, and I was goateed. I could see it, but now I don't see it. A lot of people say I look like Adam Savage, uh, formerly of the Mythbusters. I've actually intentionally changed some of my appearance to look less like Adam Savage. <laughs> but both of them are older than me and uh, don't have any film background, so I don't think they would uh, be in the film, especially since you'd be playing me some years ago. So I think we should give up on you know, the fidelity of who looks like me and instead go with what I'd like. Uh, I'd love a Will Ferrell movie about my life. 
It would be absurd, but uh, I laugh at every single Will Ferrell movie. Same thing as Seth Rogen wanted to write, direct, and lead in a film about my life. That would be amazing. Uh, my la- my other choice, uh, probably my favorite, would be to have Wes Anderson do <laughs> Finding God. Otherwise, he would retitle it, I'm sure. Uh, and then, of course, Owen Wilson would be the lead. It wouldn't matter. It, it just Owen Wilson would be the lead. Maybe Bill Murray would pay, play Rob Bell. <laughs> I don't know if you watch Wes Anderson movies. If you do, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, it's probably a little confusing right now. <laughs> that would be amazing. Wes Anderson movie about my life. I I can't like do question. I can't do the question justice with my answer. I talked to Jenny, my wife, because she's really into Hollywood. And <laughs> who would you want to play me? In the, in the movie of my life. And uh, she said Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Which obviously I look nothing like the the god Thor from Marvel's uh, cinematic universe. Uh, but my wife uh, would just like to meet Chris Hemsworth. So <laughs> I think there was an ulterior motive there. Uh, fantastic question. Really fun place to end the show this week. Thanks for listening to this program, honestly. Thanks for sending in your questions. If you haven't, send me a question, please. Go to AskScienceMike.com. You can send in a voicemail, and then you'll hear your voice on the program. You can type a question as an email. Both of those right on AskScienceMike.com. You do have a better chance of getting on the show if you send a voice question than a text question. You get way, 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 way more emails than voicemails. And I like, I like the voicemails the best. So I make sure we get at least two every show. Uh, but you, you can you can be on the show. If you want to help pick the questions for the show, donate through Patreon. Uh, people do. I love it. Uh, I like, I pay my mortgage. It's fantastic. <laughs> That's how I do this show is, is, is the patrons on Patreon. This show, believe it or not, takes a ton of time. I know it sounds haphazard and, and uh, roughshod, but uh, this is actually is like my job. <laughs> Uh, and I spend a lot of time trying to make sure I have good answers to your questions. So you can you can you can join me on Patreon and uh, pick the questions every week, along with a couple hundred of your closest friends. I want to thank Greg Nordine for producing and sound designing the show. I want to thank Andrew Galucky for uh, sorting through your questions when they come in, for coordinating our together groups. By the way, if, if you haven't been in a Together group, go click the Together icon on AskScienceMike.com and you can connect with Ask Science Mike listeners in your area. I want to thank my patrons for making this show exist every week. I want to thank you for listening. Keeping it going. You know, it's really funny. Uh, the numbers have been going back up again. They were kind of, kind of uh, stabilized for a while and now they're starting to tick up again. And so for all of you who are new, I don't know how you found me. I don't exactly advertise this show really at all. But I'm glad you're here. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I'd love to hear your questions. So send those in, and I'll talk to you next week. Ah!